I want you to take your Bibles if you have them, and I want you to turn to the Gospel of Luke, continuing in the Gospel of Luke. We actually have, and, and don't let this maybe fool you, we have a very short passage, but short passages tend to lean, lean toward long sermons. So I'll try, to, I'll try to balance that out a little bit. Uh, when I was a kid, by the way, when you know, we had Sunday night church, and uh, you're, you're going to think this is awful, but I wasn't a pastor then, so it's okay. Uh, our question to my dad every Sunday afternoon was, do we have to bring our Bibles tonight? Because if the answer was no, we knew it was going to be a film or it was going to be somebody, you know, a special presentation or something. So, but bring your Bibles to Pleasant Hill Community Church. Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse 10. On a Sabbath... Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue leader said to the people, there are six days for work. So come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. The Lord answered him, you hypocrite. Doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? When he said this, all his opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted with the wonderful things he was doing. Now, whether you look on our uh, Facebook page or you uh, go to our website, it's, it's everywhere that I've been calling this series through the book of Luke, good news for everyone. It, it's very possible that on reading that series title, some would say, well, duh, Pastor Scott, the good news is for everyone. And yet, we know that, but I think sometimes we each could be in danger of putting an obstacle in the way of someone else coming to know that good news. Uh, the good news of Jesus is a, is a relationship. It's a relationship with the Father through Jesus Christ, through putting faith in Him, believing He died on the cross for our sins. It's a relationship that involves that indwelling of the Holy Spirit into our lives who guides us and directs us and corrects us and helps us understand God's Word. And so we have to be careful how we treat the everyone around us, especially those who tend to be on the edge of what we would call societal acceptance. In fact, the, the sociological term is the people who are marginalized. A person is, who's marginalized is, is often treated as someone who's insignificant, someone whose voice just doesn't really matter, especially to anyone in power. Uh, the, a person who's marginalized, their, their contributions aren't typically recognized. In fact, sometimes they're taken and given, others take credit for them. And, and I know that when I think about that type of stuff, and I think about 
people being marginalized, my own first reaction, maybe yours is, whew, thank you, Jesus, that's not me. Thank you, I don't do that. Um, but I think we need to be careful because any of us at any time can treat someone in a way that makes them feel unimportant, on the outside, insignificant, marginalized. When I read the Gospels, and especially as I've read the Gospel of Luke quite significantly uh, through this series, I have been impressed with the fact that Jesus lived in the margins. He went to the marginalized. Uh, he went to the people that the religious establishment had determined weren't worthy. Note what we've seen just in our journey through Luke. All of the following were marginalized in the first century. We had a childless couple. We have a young couple whose uh, child is born out of wedlock before they were married. They were still engaged, but they weren't married. The marriage hasn't been consummated. We have a young, uh, we have a, a group of shepherds. We looked at some fishermen and some tax collectors. We looked at a man who was paralyzed and could not work. We looked at a woman who had a very bad reputation and anointed Jesus at a dinner party. We looked at sinners that he connected with at meals, lepers that he touched, a demon-possessed man who terrorized a town, a woman who had been ceremonially unclean because of a bleeding issue for 12 years, the story that was told of a despised Samaritan who did good. All of those are considered marginalized by the religious establishment. They were really not worthy of experiencing all that God's kingdom had to offer. All of them loved Jesus all of them were, however, loved by Jesus and noticed by him. Today, in the brief passage I've just read, we get to another person who is marginalized. And we need to seriously ask ourselves, how do I think about others? Is there anyone that I have kind of determined isn't worthy of God's love? Now, I need to give you three little vignettes, three realities, so that you can fully understand the nuances of this page, of this page, of this chapter. To fully understand this story, we need to understand the general view of sickness in the first century. And it, it kind of extended beyond or earlier than the first century. The best way I can explain it is just to share with you one verse. It's in John 9, verse 2. Jesus and the disciples are walking along. They come alongside a man, and uh, it's evident that he was born blind. And the question asked is, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And that gives you an insight into how sickness was viewed. If you are sick, if you are disabled in any way, then there is sin either in your life or you're paying for the sin of your family. So we have a woman here who's been bent over for 18 years. She must be a really bad sinner, or there must be sin in her family that she has to pay for. So you can see how that person would be kind of set aside because we're not supposed to be with sinners. Now I want to add another element to that. We've got to talk for a minute about Sabbath. Uh, the Sabbath, the way it was viewed 
in this time period is not how God intended it. Jesus viewed the Sabbath in the way that God intended it, and he was called a lawbreaker. The purpose for Sabbath, as stated in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, the purpose of the Sabbath was to rest. The word Sabbath, the Hebrew word, literally means cease, rest, stop. Uh, but what we were reminded was that work was to stop on the Sabbath, and God was to be the focus. And I would add to that, relationships were to be the focus. When the religious leadership returned from the Babylonian captivity, they realized they needed to have a, a real clear view of what the Sabbath was. What does it mean to work? And if I can define what it means to work, then I can define what I need to stop. And they began to come up with a list. Eventually, they came up with 40 less one or 39 categories, broad categories of work. Now, under each of those categories were all kinds of little details that would be work, the things that you shouldn't do. And it was amazing. It, it, it actually became a burden. I, I went and read some of those. Uh, one of them was this. I'll just give you one example. If I come to your door and I'm poor and I knock on your door and you have some food that you want to give me, but it's the Sabbath, the minute my hand crosses your threshold to receive that food, I have worked and I have violated the Sabbath. And if your hand crosses the threshold to give me that food, you've worked, and therefore you violated the Sabbath. And it got down to those kinds of little details. That's never what God intended. And in fact, in Exodus 23, 12, God says the Sabbath is for a time of refreshment. It, it wasn't meant to be a burden. It was meant to, we live in an agricultural community in those times, so you don't go out in the fields, you don't work, you take a break, you give all of your servants a break, you give your animals a break, and you take that day to focus and celebrate the goodness of God, the provision of God, and you enjoy your relationships together. Now here's the thing. That microscope of legalism that they all put together, that the, all of that, it, it eventually got compiled into a book called the Mishnah. But the Mishnah wasn't completed until about 200 years after Jesus. So that means that it was the religious leaders who knew all the rules and therefore could apply the rules when it fit them. Okay, one more thing. Believe it or not, we got to understand just a little bit about the architecture in Israel. The basic house of the basic person was a one-room house, sometimes about 15 feet wide, about 20 feet long, give or take. There was a main room, and in the main room, everything took place. You cooked there, you ate there, you gathered as a family there, you slept there, everything took place in the main room. On the end of the house near the door was another smaller area. Depending on the terrain, there would be maybe steps down to that smaller area, or there would be timbers put up and it was basically a stall. You see, 
you didn't have a barn. So if you had a, a couple of sheep, maybe a cow, maybe a few goats, during the day, they would be out in your small courtyard. But at night, you would bring them in to the stall so they would be protected. They would be safe. So in the morning, what's the first thing you do? You get up, you go to the door, and you lead your animals out so they can get some water outside, a little exercise, a little sun. And we need to keep that description in mind as we move on. You know, when I, when I went through all of those, it struck me this to this. God is fully aware of the time in which we each live. Yeah, while you and I are to be obedient to the Word of God, we also need to know that God gives us the grace to apply His Word in the context in which we live. Because He knows that we're in the western suburbs of Chicago in the 21st century, and He understands the context in which we live. Okay, enough of that. Let's go to Luke 13. It's the Sabbath day. It's a day of rest. It's a day to focus on God. And that time, synagogues or around the area were places together to learn about God, to hear someone explain God's word. And uh, Jesus on this Sabbath day was invited to teach. Now that is an honor. There was a synagogue ruler that we'll meet in a minute. We've already been introduced to him. His job was to basically put the service together. Who's going to speak and what and, and all, and, and he had it all set up. And he wanted to hear Jesus that day. Now, we don't know what his motive was. Luke doesn't get into that. He had invited Jesus to teach, and Jesus teaches. One little side note, in the Gospel of Luke, this will be the last recorded instance of Jesus speaking in a synagogue. Uh, personally, I find that interesting. I wonder if that's Luke, Luke's way of saying nobody else ever invited him again. I don't know, but it's the last time we have it in Luke's gospel. So the group gathers. Now, typically in your synagogue, the men would be at the front, the women would be at the back. The group gathers, and uh, all it, we're, we're, we realize there's a woman there who's described simply as being crippled, crippled by a spirit. Another thing about sickness, sometimes sickness was looked at as an act of the enemy, an act of Satan. So whether it was actually a satanic attack, Jesus will use those words in a few minutes, or whether it was a physical malady, we just know that she was crippled. She was so crippled, she was bent over. She'd been this way for 18 years. Just think for a minute. What were you doing 18 years ago? You know, what was going on in your life 18 years ago? And as you take a minute and you start thinking about, some of you are going, uh, Pastor Scott, I wasn't even a twinkle in, in my parents' eyes 18 years ago. I didn't even exist. 18 years, almost two decades, this woman is bent over. She can't straighten up. My guess is she's at the furthest back part of the room. Maybe it's so painful she can't sit down because when she sits down bent over, it's hard to breathe. But there's something here that we kind of blow by and I don't want you to miss it. It's this. She was bent over, could not straighten up at all when Jesus saw her. Don't miss that. 
Don't miss that at all. The word that's translated to see means to perceive, to become aware of, to notice. Jesus noticed her. Jesus saw her. As he was teaching, as he was expounding the word of God, he saw her. He noticed her. Would you remember that today? If you don't remember anything else I say today, would you remember this? Jesus sees you. He sees you right now. He is fully aware of you. He notices you. You may feel alone today. You may feel abandoned. You may feel invisible. You may feel left out. You may feel neglected. You may feel marginalized. Jesus sees you. When you feel you want to hide, when you feel you want to fade into the background, when you really just want to be left alone, Jesus sees you. When no one else seems to understand, when no one else seems to care, when nobody else seems to get you, Jesus sees you. No one brought this woman to Jesus. Oftentimes people would bring other people to Jesus. No one brought her to Jesus. She didn't come on her own to be healed. She didn't want to be noticed. She wanted to be in the background. But Jesus saw her, bent over, in pain, only wanting to hear from Jesus, not wanting to make a scene, not wanting to be rebuked by some self-righteous person who was going to call her out and blame her for her sin that had caused her to be so crippled. But Jesus saw her. Jesus sees you. And what does Jesus do? The last thing that maybe she wanted, he calls her forward. He asks her to come up. You're not going to turn down the rabbi. You're not going to say no. So she comes up. And can you just imagine for a moment? I mean, yes, she trusts Jesus, but coursing through her mind was, oh, no. What now? How am I going to be rebuked? How is the teacher going to point out my sin? But Jesus wanted to show the people the true meaning of the Sabbath. He wanted them to rethink Sabbath. And he wanted to do something good in her life. So he calls her up. And, and he steps into her life for a specific purpose. He wanted to set her free. That's what the text says. He called her forward and he said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. To be set free means to be released. What a, a great statement. Jesus then reaches over and notice he does what nobody else would do. He put his hands on her. He touched her. He touched her gently. He, he gave her that touch that said, I care about you. That touch that said, I, I'm here for you and I'm here with you. And the Bible says immediately she straightened up and praised God. Would you imagine that moment with me for a minute? Just, just imagine that moment. Uh, can you see it in your own mind? 
And maybe if you can't imagine that moment, think of something that maybe happened just amazing to you, something that you never anticipated would happen, and all of a sudden it does, something great comes into your life. Remember the joy, remember the cheers, remember the, 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 just the, the laughter and the praising God. For two decades, this lady has been bent over. She's been the object of criticism. She's only been noticed for her ailment, not for who she really is. And Jesus sees her and releases her. I could go all sorts of ways here. But I want to make this point, then I want to explain it. Remember this, not only does Jesus see you today, Jesus wants to set you free. Remember, we saw it back in Luke chapter 4 when he was in Nazareth and, and he talked about his mission. He quoted Isaiah. And one of the things that he quoted in Isaiah was, I have come to bring freedom for the prisoners. Jesus wants to set you and me free. Now, listen to me very carefully. To be set free from Jesus will look differently for every one of us. We have a tendency to look only at the physical. But the fact of the matter is, freedom from disease or freedom from physical hindrance is only part of the work of God. Sometimes the work of God is much deeper than a physical struggle. I, I know I've, some of you will say, oh, I've heard this story before, <laughs> but it really just fits. Uh, it comes from a book wit written quite a few years ago by a pastor. His name is M. Craig Barnes. What is it with pastors who use first initials? You know, what's that about? His name is, and uh, Pastor Barnes wrote a book entitled When God Interrupts. Part of the book tells his own journey with throat cancer. Uh, for a pastor to have throat cancer is tough. Any cancer is tough, but we make our living with our throats. But Pastor Barnes tells not only of his own journey, but the lessons he learned from others. In the book, he tells about a, a thing that their church did. Every several months, they would do a prayer service. And it would be a prayer service where the pastor and the elders would gather at the church and invite people to come in that day and to come down and to receive prayer for whatever they needed. Sometimes it was for emotional issues and maybe mental and struggles and social struggles, job issues, and physical issues. Barnes tells of a woman who came down the aisle one evening suffering from a crippling arthritis and he prayed for her healing. At the next prayer service several months later, she came back and this time she was walking with the help of a cane and he remembered gathering, standing next to her and laying his hands on her and praying again for her healing and praying fervently. Well, they had a prayer service several months later, about six months later. The same woman came in, this time being helped down the aisle in a wheelchair. Pastor Barnes and one of the elders knelt beside the wheelchair. And he said, we prayed and we prayed for God to be merciful for her. And we prayed for his healing and his mercy. And he says this, when I finished, she had the brightest smile on her face. God is merciful, Pastor. Thank God he's healed my heart that was so crippled with anger. At long last, I am a free woman. Barnes concludes, 
it was never her body that she was worried about. It was her heart all along. It was not until her body stopped working that her heart began to work. When we talk of Jesus setting us free, don't limit it to physical. Jesus wants to set free the whole person. He wants to set you free body, mind, and spirit. Maybe sometimes he needs to have one part of us not work just right so that the part that he really wants to heal can have the strength to heal. The first response of this woman is the response of anyone being set free. It's to praise God. God works in our lives to turn our attention to him. And, and those of us who witness God's work should praise God. But sometimes we get in our own way. Sometimes we are blind to the work of God. And for me, verse 14 falls into a category. Maybe you've seen this on Facebook or other places. Somebody posts something and then their response is, I just can't. Uh, I can't have words. I can't take it. I can't, I can't believe this. Verse 14 is my, I just can't. You see, I see the response of the synagogue ruler and I am at a loss for words. How, after seeing what Jesus has done, just done, how, after seeing this woman set free from an ailment of 18 years, how can he be indignant? But that's what it says, indignant, because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. That word indignant literally means he was shuddering with anger. Just let that soak in a minute. He is shuddering with anger. Why? Because Jesus healed on the Sabbath on the day that was set aside to focus on the goodness of God, on a day that was set aside to be refreshed in God, how dare you heal on the Sabbath? How dare you do good on the Sabbath? And look at his answer. There are six days for work. Come and get healed then, but don't come on the Sabbath to get healed. I ran across this summary that I think says it best. Dedication to God leads to meeting human need, while dedication to religion protects the tradition even at the cost of human life. I put it this way. Religion without compassion is empty tradition. We go back and we look at that biblical record regarding the Sabbath we look at the small list of things prohibited by God and the reason was, as we've already said from Exodus 23, 12, to be refreshed. Even before the Ten Commandments were given, God was setting aside the seventh day for the people. And, and when they're in the, the desert and they're collecting the manna, remember on the sixth day they were to collect extra enough needed for two days, and to trust God to preserve the manna so they could have it the next day. Now, if some of them got a little wise and said, you know, if that works on the sixth day, I think on the first day, I'll collect double. Then I won't have to go out the next day. So I'll use our terms. On Tuesday, 
or on Monday, I'm going to collect double so I can take Tuesday off. Tuesday's my, my personal day. I'm taking that day off. No, wouldn't work that way. God would have maggots eat the extra because trust God for what you need today. That's the, the Sabbath was about that. He was, he was angry because they had done, Jesus had done something good. The focal point of the seventh day, the focal point of the Sabbath is to trust God, to know that God is able, to believe that God provides, and nowhere in my reading of the Old Testament is there any prohibition against doing good or showing compassion on the Sabbath. That prohibition was added later. You know, so we, we try to help God. Okay, God hasn't made it clear, so we're going to help him out. We're going to add some rules to it. The synagogue ruler tells the people, you got it six other days. Come and get healed then. Oh, you mean the days when we're actually working? You mean the days when we're actually working to put food on our table? So if we took time off of that, then that could be the day that we lose that job because many people had a job day at a time. They were day laborers. Oh, so you mean the days when we could get punished for leaving the job? You want us to come then? Good. So that's how God is? That's the word picture you want me to have of God? Come when it's convenient for my human leaders to get healed, but not when we all gather. Jesus is angry. I don't think these are calm, monotone words uttered with a slightly British accent. He is angry because nothing in my understanding angered Jesus more than religion getting in the way of people experiencing the kingdom of God. Jesus points out the hypocrisy and the mixed-up thinking of the synagogue ruler and everybody who's in agreement with him. This is where the architecture comes in. I mentioned at that in the morning, you wake up in the common room where you slept, and you go over to the door, and you open it, and you untie your cow, and you lead him out, or your sheep, or your goats, and you bring him into your small courtyard. And that's what Jesus says, even on the Sabbath day. He says, doesn't each of you on the Sabbath day untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? The answer is, yeah, we do. Everybody who had an ox or a donkey or a goat or a sheep, they do this. Otherwise, you can't get out of your house. The animals are in the way. And it smells. The first thing they do in the morning, and that includes the Sabbath, is to take their animals out. And you know what? That was okay. It was okay in the Old Testament code. It was okay for the code of the rabbis and the Pharisees. You got to take care of your animals even on the Sabbath. And in fact, in just the next chapter we're going to be looking at, Jesus mentions if your child or your oxen falls into a pit on the Sabbath, you're going to get people to help you to get it out. You're not going to leave it there. Those are just animals that they untie. Jesus says, this woman is a daughter of Abraham. She's one of you. She's your kinsperson, so to speak. She's an heir of the promise of God through Abraham. She has been tied up. That's literally what the word bound means. She's been tied up for 18 long years. 
shouldn't she be untied? In fact, the word untie your ox and donkey and set free, same word. Jesus uses a word picture. You untie your donkey and you lead it out. Shouldn't this woman be untied from her ailment? 18 years. Jesus, the answer is by all means. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely she should be set free. Absolutely she should be untied. Absolutely because she's an heir of God's promises. What a better way to honor God than on the day that we set aside for God, we come alongside this one who has been bound up by Satan and we free her so that she can worship God. And you know what? The people get it. Look at, look at the last verse here. When he said this, all his opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. The people, the uneducated, the common laborers, the ones that didn't go to seminary, they got it. Wow, Jesus is showing us what this is all about. The religious leaders, the learned ones, the one with the advanced degrees in theology, were humiliated. They were put to shame. They were disgraced. Now, as I thought about that, there are several reactions you can have when you're humiliated. You can shrink back and do nothing. You can make excuses. You can get angry and determine that you will never be humiliated again, and you're going to guarantee that by some way eliminating the one who humiliated you. Or you can stop. Take a step back, look inward, and ask yourself, where do I need to change? I don't think that happened with the religious leaders because we all know how the story goes throughout the Gospels. And that led me to this conclusion. Empty tradition cripples us from pursuing healthy self-correction. When someone's set on guarding traditions, they are only focused on protecting something. They don't focus on how they need to change. Instead of seeking to change where they might be wrong, these religious leaders dug in more. They dug in more, and they would be starting the process of eliminating the inconvenient questions that came from the lawbreaker, Jesus. When we put compassion first, we are following Jesus. It doesn't mean you excuse sin. It doesn't mean you gloss over it. It doesn't mean you ignore it. It means you trust God to do his work in his time to change people that are willing to change. If he calls you and me to confront someone, then we do so. We do so truthfully, firmly, lovingly, compassionately. None of us are better than anyone else. We're all pilgrims on a journey together with Jesus. I feel most sorry for the person who says they have nothing from which they need to repent because that's a person who's not really looking at their lives. They need to change. Uh, th that's a dangerous person to know because they don't listen to God or listen to God's people or care about God's word. But that's not who God wants us to be. God wants us to follow the example of Jesus, to see the people in the margins, to be proactive in reaching out and showing compassion, 
to use that as a platform to point people to the God who loves them and through faith in Jesus wants a relationship with them. Jesus sees you today. Jesus wants to set you free today. Do you know him? And remember, take good stock of your own life because religion without compassion is empty tradition and that empty tradition will cripple you from letting God help you pursue healthy self-correction. Let's pray. Father, we, we see this story and may we find ourselves in that story. Lord, I hope we find ourselves one as having been set free by you, knowing that you see us. I hope we find ourselves as the people who celebrated your work in someone else's life. But Lord, if we see ourselves as one who gets a little upset when good things happen to people we don't think good things happen to, should happen to, would you help us to change that little simple prayer that we mention all the time, Lord, change me. Because, Lord, I, I never want to be indignant at your work. I want to celebrate your work. I want to celebrate who you are and what you do. May we celebrate you today in Jesus' name. Amen.